Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Recording in progress. Side of Port Dalhousie. <laughs> well, usually on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock, but we're doing a live one right here with Josh Denny. He's my guest. Welcome aboard. This is where you find him on social media. This is his website. I guess that's not social media. That's just his website. Josh dennycomedy.com you can hook him up there then uh this is his page over on censored.tv where you can find him there censored.tv uh, well whatever the links are in the show description below so you should have no excuse I'm trying to find this man here he is on twitter at josh denny twatter and on the fake book fakebook.com slash josh denny official oh and he's even got an imdp page so my brother how are you today i'm well man thank I'm you for taking right. the time we had a little bit of a technical well the host had a technical glitch not your fault but uh yeah i appreciate happens, your patience like, yeah i go through this stuff all the time too i've had like i you know i've gotten better now lately at checking everything out like hours before i'm supposed to go live because mm. i've had times where i've waited until you know, like right up until I'm supposed to do a podcast or something, and then <laughs> I I realize that the internet in my place is out. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. That I have like a major computer problem or uh, a sound problem or something. So I thought you were taking a shot know. at me as the guy that doesn't do the checks and balances. Yeah, no, not at all. No, good. I'm just saying that's exactly what happened the last time we tried to do this. Was I didn't even check. I wasn't even at my computer up until like. 30 minutes before I was supposed to call into your show. And then I was like, oh, yeah, my Internet's out. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. And How you are... can try to you can try to like tether to your cell phone to stream, but it looks awful. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I uh, not since my old Palm Pilot 610. I remember when I finally cracked that thing and got it to tether to my old PC. I, I had a laptop and it took me it took me like six hours all night and a lot of beers and around four o'clock in the morning i was like i did it i don't think they were designed to do that but uh yeah, yeah. trios it, it's that. well it's like the idea that the internet isn't throttled based off of what you're doing like if i'm trying to if i was trying to upload to Streamyard or to to live stream on Streamyard, 
through my phone tethered, I would get like the worst bit rate and I would look like an 8 bit, mm. you know, old Nintendo game. Yeah. But if I was streaming, if I tether my television to my phone to watch Netflix, I can get full 4K, no problem. Isn't that interesting how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, for those that I don't, know, I don't know all that much about you either, uh, Gavin sent me. You know, that's the only reason I was introduced to you. I think uh, he was making some noise about when you first came on the show, and then I started checking out your show. Uh, it's different from everything else on the channel, which is maybe where you're going for. It's a quality show. I love the, you know, uh, what? It, that's the highest compliment you could pay me because that in the beginning. That is all I set out to do was to do something different than what's on the network. Oh, so. nice. Nice. And <clears> I'll see, take it. Yeah. So maybe you could just spend some time telling us a little bit about, like, who you are, where you came from, and how you got to uh, where you are now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I <clears throat> I grew up in Philadelphia. I was born just outside of Philadelphia. Eagle fan? Yeah. I, well, I was for a long, long time, but I got to be honest, the, the round of – the round of personnel changes this last go around really kind of made me fall out of love with Philadelphia as a sports city altogether. Wow. And then believe it or not, you know, I've always been a hockey fan. That was my first sport. I played ice hockey as a kid and, and up through high school. And, oh yeah, me too. Um, yeah. And I, I played goalie. I was a goalie. Oh, so you're a special type of human being then. Well, you know, it's it that should have been the telltale sign that I was not destined for a normal lifestyle, yeah, right? It always like, is. The coolies goalies are, are always the guys that are a little fucking weird, or they have a, a screw little. loose, or they're, mm. you know. So that should have been a, um, you know, that should have been. And quite frankly, I felt like I just picked the position because I enjoyed it more. I felt like it was a little bit more. It required a little bit more mental game than uh than skating or playing defense i never really felt mentally challenged by that uh but mm -hmm. i like the mental challenge of being a goaltender and having to predict predict you know what players would do and and having you know i feel like in that position maybe more the more so than in any mm -hmm. other part of athletics um your mental edge is a bigger part of your ability to play that position than any other athletic position. So knowing player tendencies and it's kind of like poker. It's like, it's, it very much becomes a skill uh, game and you can get away with maybe not being the most athletic goaltender. If you're very good at, at uh, pattern recognition and you're very good at knowing what players are going to do yeah. mm -hmm. and you're patient. Yeah. So um Loved hockey. I, I I fell back in love with Philadelphia as a sports city uh, by getting into baseball. I was never really a big baseball fan since I was a kid. You know, we lost the World Series when I was a kid in the '90s to a to the Toronto Blue Jays. I was, I was cheering for Philly even as a Canadian uh, boy. I was going, "Go, John Crock!" You man. know the, the fucking <laughs> Mitch Williams fiasco, right? Uh, it was that, and that was brutal. Like watching. You know, the jokes going, it was like, there's no way a Canadian team's going to beat us in the World Series. And we got pounded. Mm. And um, I, I remember just, I remember being a kid, like, ceremoniously throwing my baseball glove in the trash when they lost that World Series. And uh, and I never went back to base. I watched it. Obviously, I watched it when the world watched it, when uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa had that, you know, epic run. And I just watched that 30 for 30 a couple weeks ago. I'm mm. way behind. But uh, that was the only baseball I really watched. And then I've kind of get through the pandemic. I kind of got really into it, just watching it and, and you know, following up. And, and the amazing thing is, is like even now, I think this is probably the first time in recent baseball history since, you know, the steroids been kicked out that there are really good athletes playing baseball again. 
And, um, you know, it's amazing. Like me and my buddy, Carl, who's another comedian, he played uh, football, uh, you know, college, semi-pro and pro for a little bit. And, um, you know, he was like, God damn, we fucked up by not playing baseball. It's like, you know, these guys play almost until they're 50. There's no contact. Mm -hmm. There's not hardly any injuries. You know, most of your injuries are like ligaments or sprains and stuff like that. But it's like what that would have been would have been the much better sport, you know, in terms of like your longevity. So uh, I don't know. I, I It's been kind of exciting. But uh, yeah, that's the longest answer to are you an Eagles fan that I could possibly give you, Jim. <laughs> Well, I didn't know what to make of it with Siriano coming in uh, either and the whole reshuffling of the deck and that that always kind of kind of scares me especially when you're kicking out a, a you know a Super Bowl winning coach but you know Andy Reid was a Super Bowl caliber coach too in Philadelphia and it just came to a point where you can't do business with the guy anymore. You, you know what it is? You know what bothered me and what what basically turned me off from the city of Philadelphia is I felt like that was the fucking organization responding to the fans. And running the team like they're a bunch of fans playing fantasy football. And, you know, the Flyers did this, and it made me really fall out of love with the Flyers when they did this as well. But the Flyers did this about a decade ago, if you remember. There was, like, all this media uh, hubbub around the reason the Flyers couldn't get over the hump and win a cup was because there was off-the-ice issues with Mike Richards and Jeff Carter and Scott Hartnell, and they were, you know, they were partying too much, and they were too friendly off the ice, and... There were all kind. Of, there was like all these rumors of supposed drama that was happening off the ice, and so you know none of that substantiated, none of that proven. The GM like traded all their star players out of town, uh, and and two of them ended up on the Kings, and they won back to back Stanley Cups yeah. in Los Angeles uh, on the heels of bad decision making from. Uh, at the time, Flyers GM Paul Holmgren. So I remember watching that and be like, it's like the fucking fans, the shitty Philadelphia fans are running the team. Mm. And it felt that way with what happened with the Eagles this year too. It's like Carson Wentz played four bad games or a few bad games behind a completely depleted team for the second year in a row. Um, and and all of a sudden he's the biggest bust and the, they people are talking about him like he's Jamarcus Russell. Well, he's trying to He's hurt again. He just broke his foot. He's out for twelve uh, weeks. He, yeah, but so did their all pro left guard. Does yeah, that mean their all pro yeah. left guard doesn't deserve to be the highest paid lineman in football? With, is he hooked up with uh, Nick Foles back there? Is Nick Foles hanging out with him in Indy now? Yeah, I don't know. People are people are clamoring for uh, <laughs> for Reich to trade for Nick Foles, but I think they'll roll with their young guy and then. You know, Carson will come in when he's healthy and he'll play. You know, he's not going to be out for the season. He'll probably miss the first half. But it's still like, you know, just this idea. It drives me. The fair weather nature of Philadelphia sports fans drives me nuts. And these guys don't even take the time to learn how to pronounce the fucking names of the players in their cities. Yet they're all experts. They're guys that are 200 pounds heavier than me sitting around talking about fucking coverages like they ever played the game. It just drives me nuts. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the idea that they were going to trade Carson Wentz out, the, the player who was a big part of them winning their first Super Bowl ever and fire the coach who coached them in their first Super Bowl ever, you know, from one bad season is fucking – it's such a Philadelphia thing to do. And so, I, you know, I, like, got rid of all my Eagle shit. No way Col you yeah, did. Yeah, I got a, bought a bunch of Colts stuff. I was no! like, I'll be a fucking Colts fan now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I'm done with it. I'm just <laughs> fucking over it. And I also just, like, I read Philadelphia sports media shit, and it's like two days ago, two days ago when the no news broke about Carson's foot 
everyone's going, oh, yeah, fucking injury prone. Yeah, good for him. And then they're talking about how that's going to hurt their draft pick, which I'm like, great. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope it hurts their draft pick. Um, but then then uh, two days later, Devontae Smith uh, injury, he's going to be out for the rest of the preseason. It's like, do you not think that that's karma? You guys are over here fucking celebrating and talking shit about Carson Wentz getting hurt again. And then your number one draft pick goes down. It's like, you do realize this is a sport where people get injured. Like, yeah. I, I, everyone just has this mentality that every player should be like Tom Brady mm, and well, he's a, never just, get never get hurt and play until they're yeah. seventy. He's he's got his wife must be into witchcraft or something like that. I just how how that man does it. You know, I managed to hate Tom Brady for a good portion of his career, but then he's so good. And he's so cool, and he's such a he seems like a decent human being. I don't know anything about him, but how can you how can you hate a guy that methodically takes five step drops, two bounces, and then a laser every time? Like that, he's, he's as close to flawless as it gets at that position. You just can't. Well, hate he's the guy. he's yeah, he's a guy I think who just hacked the system. He figured out mm. uh, how to take care of your body perfectly, mm. how to play the game in the most efficient way without For taking longevity. hits and without mm. getting injured. Um, and, he, and he's always had coaching staffs that buy into what, you know, how he wants to play the game and the system he wants to play. And, you know, I yeah, people are saying, could he play till he's 50? I think he could. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy, the guy's in amazing shape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how, uh, you know, Brady is kind of like, Brady reminds me a lot of sort of George St. Pierre. And, and I don't know if you are a big MMA fan, but, oh, you know, towards the end of his fighting career, and arguably, you know, it's hard to say what that would have done if he would have stayed unretired and, and kept fighting. But uh, GSP was talking about the importance of not doing weight training. And he was like working out in the pool all the time and not sparring and not taking hits. And I think Brady is probably the first NFL player that that um, has kind of hacked this thing of like, you know, being able to squat 2000 pounds. Mm is not necessarily the key to a long career in the NFL. And I think he spends more time working on uh, dexterity and flexibility and um, and just overall fitness versus like bulking up to the point of, of being a, an ineffective player who's injured all the time. So mm-hmm. I think there's something to it. I think there's something to the way he trains, obviously his diet and his whole regiment that, uh, you know, when he's done, I think we're going to find out mm-hmm. that the dude is uh, – is on to some shit that, you know, players in 10 years from now, what he's doing to succeed will become the norm in football. Amen. I became an Eagle fan because I was late to the football game. As far as uh, maturing into that sport, I was always a hockey guy. I played it and even competitively for a little while. And I was always uh, a Flyer fan. Like I was Bobby Clark. If I ever put, when I was street hockey, I was always played center organized hockey. I was a big defenseman on the line left uh, lefty, but, those were my boys. I grew up with them, and now I find NHL completely unwatchable. Even the play, like a few years ago, the playoffs were amazing, and and I I got to saying, okay, well, I can only watch playoff hockey, I guess. But I think Batman's NHL has just become completely unwatchable. Yeah, yeah, it's a real, you know, it's a real sort of finesse game, and live. I still say it's the best sport to see live. But uh, on TV, it's like I, I can't watch it at all until it's like playoff time. It just I feel like the game, you know, it's they did a lot of stuff to like speed it up. But, um, you know, there's there's so many penalties now and and the 
the kind of fines these guys pay and the suspensions they deal with when they mm-hmm. actually do their job and lay somebody the fuck out yeah. is like, you know, it makes the game a very pussy game, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it's amazing too, because, you know, you look at guys like Lindros and Yager and they and they were the big players when I was a kid coming up and playing. Those were guys that were monsters and um, you know, the game was arguably way more physical back then. I mean, obviously Lindros got concussed out of hockey mm-hmm. and uh, arguably could have been one of the greatest to ever play if that didn't happen. But you think about like if Lindros or Yager played in today's league with their size mm-hmm. and skill I, and, and, you know, now you can't hold them, you can't grab them, you yeah. can't hit them barely. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys would be scoring 200 goals a season. I agree. You know, the, the problem is that you just don't have there aren't like six foot six foot four, six foot five killer athletes aren't playing hockey anymore. They're playing football or a lot of them are getting into MMA very early on. All right. Well, uh, what are you up to these days? You mentioned how busy you are. I know you're you're a comedian, podcaster, a writer, actor, lover of food, libertarian. Can't wait to talk about that. I've been watching your tweets there uh, today. Yesterday was outrageous. We'll get into that later. But uh, like, what are you spending your time on these days? Yeah, most of my time these days, I've I've been spending on uh, the show for Censored next week tonight. So you know, that's a, a very time consuming project and. Um, I just recently started working on trying to get some um, some help on the show. So I, I got my buddy, uh, Corey Adam, who's a comedian, who's coming on to help me write and, um, you know, working on getting some other producers and stuff and kind of building out the crew for the show. But it's been I've been sort of like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins for the first six episodes. I've been writing, shooting, editing, you know, directing. I mean, the whole thing. So. You know, it's it's quite an undertaking. And I think people I think people are so you one of the things I've kind of realized very quickly is that uh, most people in this sort of comedy fan podcast fan space are used to shit being churned out, you know, like it's nothing because, you know, people put a podcast together and they, you know, a lot of people just sort of like build their studio and sit down at a desk and do 10 episodes a week. But when you're doing something that's sort of scripted and thought out and requires a lot of editing and, and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's not something you're churning out five, you know, five or six of these a day. And you're basically writing, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of new comedy every week. So um, in a way, like next week tonight is kind of replaced doing, you know, open mic stand up for me because anything that I have in my mind for a joke premise usually results in something that I do for the show. Hmm. Um, and then I have my two podcasts that I do, you know, uh, when I have guests that I actually want to talk to. So I have the wake up call, which is over on locals. And, um, and then I have uh, the darkest hour, which is more of like a stand up, kind of like a stand up behind the music that I do. Um, and that's out on all podcast platforms. Are you doing much, uh, comedy these days? I, I guess the clubs are opening and running again or what's going yeah, on? Yeah. You know, world? it's like, we just, we had just gotten back up and moving and, um, you know, I was out on the road in April, May, uh, March, and then uh, came back in June and started working on the show. I got COVID again in June, um, so I was basically did you say sick you for had the month co- of June. Sorry to interrupt. Did you say you've had COVID three times? Three times, dude. You, there's only like four people in on the planet that have had it twice. That I, I there's no reported cases of anyone getting it twice. Forget three well, times. Well, it's yeah, it's funny because um, funny. 
you know, the, the first time, the first time is undiagnosed because it was in 2019. Um, and you know, when we went to the doctor in 2019, you know, they were like, yeah, it's just this new flu that's going around that everybody's getting. And we were sick for 10 weeks and, um, all this, all the COVID symptoms. So, you know, whether you consider that a confirmed instance or not, but I can tell you when we did test positive six months later in June, um, it was, um, it was way more mild. It was like a mild reinfection. So okay. we had the same symptoms, loss of taste, loss of smell. Jeez. But but really, and, and a little bit of fatigue, but really no respiratory symptoms like we did the first time. And um, and then that time we did test positive. And then again, I was sick again in June of this year. So, you know, it was like six months between the first two and a year between the second and third time. I mean, it's not, people make it sound like this is fucking ridiculous or impossible, <laughs> but it's like, that's not out of the realm of possibility to get sick, wow. you know, three times in, in two years. And honestly, before people were like, well, you could have just had the flu. It's very possible. But the, you know, the loss of taste and smell are the symptoms that mm-hmm. to me and having it, you know, and knowing we tested positive for it once, um, having it is like, uh, you know, like it feels different than a flu. It just your body feels different than when you have the flu. Um, and, and particularly for me, my digestion is exactly the opposite. So when I have the flu, I can't stop shitting. I'm sure it's like that for most people. Um, like I can't keep food down. Anything I eat is fucking diarrhea or I, or I end up throwing it up with COVID. It's the opposite. All of the fluid in my body gets drained. I literally have to drink a gallon of water a day to stay hydrated and to stay like regular. And my, and even after I lose my sick symptoms, uh, my digestion is slowed down for what feels like three or four weeks after I've been sick. So like you'll eat, let's say you'll eat food and normally it takes about eight hours for it to fully digest. For me, sometimes it takes 24 hours for a meal to digest fully. And so, you know, it's, uh, there's a significant difference between I have the flu and, and uh, I have COVID. Like I can absolutely tell the difference. And the thing, but but you know, people are like, I can't believe you've been hospitalized. And I share those stories about being overweight and saying, like, you know, I really think, um, and it's not just anecdotal. It's just sort of based off of the data of what I've seen. Is the only people I know that have gotten really really sick from COVID are people that either had like bad comorbidities, like they had an autoimmune issue or or something else on the front side. Or they're people that drink a lot or smoke a lot or do a lot of drugs. And I, you know, I don't even, I don't even drink. Uh, I don't do any drugs. And so I have a pretty, you know, my liver's in pretty good shape, but you know, probably not as good as somebody who didn't host a show for the food network for three seasons, <laughs> but, but, you know, being somebody who's never smoked, you know, uh, in my entire life, you know, more than like what you do when you're a kid and you're trying stuff out, but like, um, you know, I've had zero, you know, zero stuff like that affect my, you know, my respiratory shit. And so, you know, I, I just, even, even historically, like when I've been sick with the flu and stuff, I've never really had bad respiratory symptoms. And I, I, you know, the first time having COVID being sick for like almost three months total, um, was rough. Like it was, we were sleeping 18 hours a day. Like we weren't hungry. We couldn't taste any food. We couldn't smell anything. The body aches were like unbelievable. The fevers were unbelievable. You know, it started feeling like I had strep throat. Like I had a really bad sore throat. 
And then that didn't go away for like two weeks. And then I thought I had, you know, I had mono when I was in my early 20s. And I was like, you know, I know it's rare that you ever have another flare up of this, but maybe I'm having a mono flare up. And I went into the doctor to make sure that I didn't have um, mono. And then I was like, if it is strep and it's this bad, I need antibiotics at this point because it's not going away on its own. And the doctor was like, your strep test came back negative. It's not mononucleosis. Um, It's probably just this really bad flu that's going around that everybody has. Hmm. And, um, you know, this is pre-COVID. And then, you know, you'll have the fucking idiots on the internet come after you and go, you know, COVID wasn't even in the United States in 2019. It's like, yeah, bullshit. And I shared the link on Twitter. You know, the, the, the fun thing is, is there's another Josh Denny out there who's the director of, uh, of this program called all of us. That's a, a derivative. It's like a genealogy, uh, wellness research division of the National Institute of Health. And he's the CEO of this sub company of the NIH. And he has the same name as me. So when my Google alerts come up, I get everything about me, but I also get everything about him. So everything that this doctor with my name works on, I see come across my email because it shows up in my Google alerts. And they had found in stored blood samples Um, Going back to like September of 2019, people were infected in the U.S. with COVID-19. And they found them in, you know, donated blood, stored blood. Um, They went back and tested stuff and found it as early as like, you know, early fall 2019. So, you know, it's obvious to me that um, what we, you know, what we're hearing and reading about this virus uh, every day we find out is less and less informed. And, uh, you know, everybody is so fucking diehard about what they believe to be true. And then tomorrow a report comes out and says, actually, we researched it and that's not true at all. You know, you heard a couple of weeks ago, they were saying everyone that's hospitalized right now are unvaccinated. And now you're seeing reports in the last 48 hours, like 70% of the people in the hospital are vaccinated, double vaxxed. So it's like, You know, what is it? Because people right now are fucking fist fighting in the grocery store over the bad information you gave them yesterday. And now you're giving them new information today. And, you know, it's what are we going to be fucking three months into a civil war in this country before they realize they go, "Uh, you know, it was a biological weapon that we accidentally leaked out and are bad. YouTube's already going off. Xander M says, false. This is fake news. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. reporting this episode for spreading COVID misinformation. Unbelievable. I mean, I can't, I can't, you can't step sideways on any platforms anymore. Talk to me about a little bit about your experience in cancel culture, man. You got to be, I mean, you, there's few at the top that have <laughs> experienced it and stayed alive and I think you're one of those guys. Uh, so tell me a little bit how you uh, how you withstood the pressure. I, I have my own story about not apologizing to the mob. And uh, I, I'm really interested in how that's kind of impacted you. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit of how it started. Well, I'll tell you, like, when you go through it, you know, I've dealt with trolling and stuff my entire career as a comedian. I mean, it's, it's just what's going to happen when you um, are, are... And listen... Like I've, I've been somebody who's had to deal with being unpopular at different points in my life all the time. Like when you're born as a smart mouth, redheaded kid, <laughs> your, your life is not going to be easy. Let's like just say I wasn't elected class president and prom king, right. you know, ever. Right. So, 
Um, you know, when you're a smart ass redheaded kid who doesn't give a fuck about what people think, you, you know, you're going to you're going to magnetize a lot of shitheads. And uh, that's never been something that's gone away in my career. You just get more and more used to it. But I think, you know, my experience with cancel culture, going back to the incident in 2018, it kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things, uh, mainly being that, you know, there's a lot of psychology at work behind that stuff that has nothing to do with you or what you said or did. Um, and ultimately it's, you know, as we're seeing right now with, you know, as the cancel culture stuff plays out more and more, like, look what's happening with the rapper DaBaby right now. You know, they are, this dude lost like 10 things, like festival appearances, brand deals. I mean, we're talking maybe like $30 million worth of shit because he said something that whether people like it or not, or not is very popular in the black community, which is, uh, you know, black dudes are pretty fucking homophobic. And, and the black community is very AIDS conscious in a way that, you know, mainstream America doesn't have to be or doesn't think they have to be. And so the thing that's funny to me is like people, you know, now we're seeing people just kind of get canceled for being themselves uh, if they're not totally politically correct in every way they are. And so for me as a comedian, it's like, well, that's not ever why I got into it. I never got into stand-up to be like the most liked or the most, you know, the most popular um, or the easiest to digest and swallow for people. So, you know, you're going to deal with, um, you're going to deal with your share of hate and you just have to be strong in your convictions. And you just have to realize like, you can't be canceled unless you quit. Like, the, you know, you can be canceled um, or people can try to cancel you or try to make your career hard or your projects hard or whatever it is. But the only way you're a failure is if you decide to quit on yourself. And most of the people that jump in the comments or jump in chats or troll the shit that I do, like these are people that have never done anything in their entire fucking lives. They're losers. And they, you know, there's this weird thing that people have now where if like they don't like secretly want to fuck you, if you're not the object of their affection, if you're not the coolest guy, like if you're not Tyler Durden, to use a reference to my favorite movie of all time, if you're not their idea of Tyler Durden, then you don't deserve to be famous or have any success. You don't even deserve to be happy or comfortable in your own skin because they are not. So, you know, that's, that is really what drives a lot of cancel culture is this idea of like, well, if I don't think you're my Messiah, I'm going to do everything I can to make you feel beneath me. And uh, it's up to you whether or not you let that work. You, you just have to decide if you're going to give a shit or not. And yeah. you know what you see is the more you don't give a shit and the more you keep going, the fucking more these people turn it on and the more these people try to, you know, interrupt and, and fuck with everything that you're doing. And do you, you just have to rise above it. Do you, do you feel the impact of the boomerang effect that I know that when – you know, my local town here during COVID, it was slow time. I called a politician an unfriendly term. You know, keep in mind, this is a radical far left, lefty, you know, my body, my choice up to nine months politician. And he said something rude about her. <laughs> he called her a name and it wasn't great. Uh, but then you put me on the, on the cover of the local newspaper. And then, you know, someone comments on it. The local regional chair makes a comment about the incendiary comments of a local podcaster. And I get pushed to the top of the news cycle again. And the hate mail goes on for 45 days. 
they couldn't have done better advertising for me. They drove people to a, a Rumble account that was a you know a, just a stopgap while I was canceled from my my big YouTube channel. My big for me it was big, um, and uh, the things that I don't know four thousand views on on Rumble or whatever that. So mm -hmm. it, it's like you guys are my the haters are my best salespeople. Yeah, I mean, you 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 find that it's like, and and the other thing you have to realize is like, um, again, like I said, the only the only way it really affects you is if you let it stop you from doing what you're trying to do. Because, you know, every every business, no matter how hard it is to get off the ground or how many obstacles you face, like every business has an inevitable tipping point that it can hit. And the real trick is just not quitting until you hit that tipping point. And you know. It's amazing because I've gone through different moments in my career where I thought like, oh, maybe this is the tipping point. Like when I got the TV show um, in 2016, you know, I was like, oh, this might be the tipping point. This might be the thing that puts me over. And then you realize like it takes a lot of those kinds of things. Like it takes a lot of things before you can hit a tipping point. And you just have to, you know, keep your head down and keep moving forward and, and figure out your niche. Like the way I look at it is, um, you know, today in 2021, the fans I have that are supporting what I'm doing today are far more engaged and far more fun than the fans I made from having a, a pretty vanilla TV show on, on cable in 14 countries uh, four years ago. You know, like I had bigger numbers then, but they weren't cool people that were really engaging with what I did or even like the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And so, you know, it, it just kind of brings you around a little bit more. I think the more you do these different things and, and have adversity or or fail at them, you know, the, the closer it gets you to what you actually enjoy and what you want to be doing. And the show on Center to me is like, it's the most fun I've had making anything, you know, and I, 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 I detest podcasting because it's everywhere and everyone does it and there's fucking millions of them and you know, it's very rare I watch a podcast and I go like, oh, cool, this is different and fun and I like it. Like the new podcast I'm into is a podcast called Are You Garbage? And it's a couple comedians out of New York who bring other comics on and just ask them questions that are sort of designed to find out if they were, you know, white trash or whatever growing up. And it's just fun. It's the simplest, funnest thing. They're funny guys. And it's one of those ideas you go, oh, fuck, why didn't I think of something as simple and enjoyable as that? And, mm. uh, you know, it's just not, it's... Uh, you know, everyone doesn't fucking hit it out of the park on their first go. Sometimes you got to do like mm. 20, 30 different things before you find the thing that works or that you really enjoy. So I, I just keep doing, I try to focus on the stuff that I'm enjoying the most at the time and put everything I have into that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I guess the answer is I, I, I think I try to work on things that I'm passionate about instead of this sense of obligation of like, Oh, I have to do this podcast every week. It's like, well, if the guests suck, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Or if the, uh, you know, or if there's really nothing to talk about, or or if you're if, on the flip side, maybe there is something to talk about that's been talked to death. You know, like in January when the fucking uh, insurrection or whatever they want to call it happened, that was like every podcast discussion for a month. Yeah. And I was, you know, it would get to the point where I would like go to hop on and do my podcast, my political podcast for locals. And I was That's like, I don't even want to fucking talk mm -hmm. about this shit. Like everyone has said everything that ever needs to right. be said about this. Mm -hmm. And it's a tough, for me as a creative person, that's a tough, um, you know, that's a tough emotion to fight because that can keep you from doing anything at all. Like you could look around and find 
enough stuff to keep you from doing anything because you're just like, everything's been done. Mm -hmm. Um, But you just have to kind of look inward at that point and go, what can I do differently or what can I add and and challenge yourself creatively to do something um, outside the box. I think for me, fortunately, I'm one of the few guys left that's like willing to take some of these risks um, in the kind of content I make. And so I think that leaves a big door open, you know, for people who are, are funny and, and willing to joke about anything. And uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of competition in that space these days because everybody's no. become pussies about the stuff they're willing to make fun of. Well, it sounds like censor.tv's kind of lit a creative fire under your ass for lack of a better term and, uh, and keep maybe keeping you accountable. I'm, I'm, I know, you know, he, he must have a pretty good income setup. As far as I know, he gives you a piece of the subs if you use your codes. I'm not sure if you're promoting that or whatever. I'm not sure that he's paying on a, on a per episode basis. But man, I mean, at 25,000 subs now, he's doing all right. But how are you generating? Like, if you're not doing stand up, you're not getting paid to play clubs or do venues. Where are you generating cash from? Just off merch and you know, donations, or like, how are you making a living? Yeah, I got, well, I, uh, locals is a big part of it. So I have like a few hundred, uh, contributors on locals. Um, I don't even know what my numbers are at now. Uh, we're not quite to 300 members on locals yet, but, um, you know, locals is a big way. Um, you know, I did, I did a, I like wrote a Twitter thread in August that, um, uh, kind of went nuts about Jim Gaffigan. You know, when Jim Gaffigan kind of went on the rampage against Trump, I I did a long kind of Twitter thread about how full of shit Jim Gaffigan is. And um, that got, that went viral. And I ended up being on a lot of uh, podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, at that point, you know, the amount of people consuming my stuff on uh, audio kind of went through the roof. So like on average, I get like maybe... 50 to a hundred thousand streams, um, you know, a month of my album, my stand-up album that I released in 2012. And, uh, after August, when I did like a bunch of press and stuff around that Gaffigan thing and that thread went viral, that number shot over well over seven figures. So I'm doing millions and millions of streams now a month. And, and that's done a lot in terms of, uh, you know, paying the bills around the house, that type of thing. So, you know, it's like I said, these things, you you work on this stuff and it just continues to kind of grow and grow slowly but surely, but eventually you sort of hit the tipping point and, uh, you know, you, you find ways to piece it together. So I, I started doing um, more political stand-up shows around town here in LA and, and working with some of those groups. So, you know, you find ways to make it work. Political comedy is all I can watch these days, it seems. I mean, it's like <laughs> I find that, you know, McGavin and myself are sometimes using the same clips. You know what I mean? And well, a lot of people like are using all the same clips. Yeah. That's that's yeah. kind I of mean, the difficult thing with being on the, the conservative videos, side is that, yeah. you know, yeah. everybody's like looking at the same shit. So, mm. um you know, it's that's a, the other thing that's kind of tough for me, though, with like Republicans is there's still this very pro clutchy conservative side as well, where, you know, I'm I'm ultimately at the end of the day, I'm a free speech over everything person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's amazing to me that there's sort of like this new, I think, libertarian fronted uh, push in conservatism. But then you'll go to these conservative events and there's still like 60 year old Reaganite Republicans 
who clutched their fucking pearls when you mentioned gay people. And it's like, what the fuck are we doing? You can't like, make fun of this, anything anymore. It's like, is this the freedom party or not? Like, what do you, you guys, like, and the funniest thing is, is like, I, I do this bit now in my act that I wrote about, and maybe you saw the episode I did with Gavin. I was telling him about going to the eye doctor and the eye doctor was like this flaming gay guy who uh, was like, ah, you looked at your eyes and I think you, have a, you might have a brain tumor. <laughs> and I was just like, well, I'll get a second opinion because you are a medical professional that fucks other guys. And so I do this whole, like, I, you know, I don't give a shit if that's your life choice, but it's, it's definitely straying from the core literature of your profession. So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so I wrote a whole bit around this thing about the idea that it's, uh, it's absurd for a doctor to be gay because, you know, it's just biologically incorrect. And so, um, it's not a good foundation for providing any sort of medical direction or advice. <laughs> and these people were so, it was like, you could tell that they're so uncomfortable with just the concept of gay people that even me talking about it was like uncomfortable for them. Meanwhile, there are two tan shirt open homosexuals on the left side of the stage fucking dying at this bit. And I'm just like, look, the faggots like it. What is your problem? And, you know, and then, of course, then then you have the uh, the hiding in plain sight Republicans who are like, don't say faggot. We only use that in in home in our homes at the dinner table. Like, it's just wild to me that, you know, to me, like this new push for conservatism is really about individualism and individual responsibility and individual freedom. And there's still people, that's why it's hard to be like, I'm a conservative because the, a lot of what is still conservatism today is very foreign to me and not, not what I'm about at all. Does so, that make sense? Uh, yeah. I wonder what you're focusing, are you focusing just on political stuff these days with the new show Uncensored? Because, I mean, what you do on Censored, I find really unnatural for me. I'm a one-take guy. There's no editing. There's no jump cuts or there's no script. When I have to follow a script, man, I get frustrated and I don't have time to do the editing and stuff like that. So I just wonder about what you're focusing on for content because, you know, it, it, for me, I just can't get away from the politics. Well, that's what's beautiful. It's like, yeah, there, there ends up being a lot of political stuff because the show started as a way of kind of mocking current events, news shows. Um so it, there is still a lot of politics, but it's really about whatever I want to talk about. And to me, it's kind of like um, my favorite way of doing stand-up is kind of how I do the show. Like the show is not scripted word for word. The only thing I script out in the show are the headlines. So those I write like monologue jokes. Um, and, and then, of course, like I'll do alt. So I'll do different takes and sometimes I'll laugh in a take. But for efficiency's sake, the jump cuts exist in those segments because if I flub a line, I just keep rolling and do it again and then cut in the sections that, mm -hmm. you know, are executed the takes the, the way that I want to ah, do them. Yeah. So sometimes you'll see me get all the way through something without a cut. Uh, sometimes there'll be 10 cuts because I keep adding and ranting and doing different stuff. So I kind of just roll and riff and then cut it together the tightest way possible that I think is funny. And that's to me the purpose of the medium. Like I don't, you don't get to do that in a live stand-up show. You don't get to do it over or take it again or go, oh, I just thought of a better tag for that joke. Um, so that's basically what I'll do is I'll take everything else as far as like the rant segments. So if 
future years or um, uh, future wishes and um, what's the other one that I do? These are changing for season two. So I'm like, I got to go back to season one of um, <laughs> of what the segments are. But the two segments I do, um, in addition to the headline segment in the show, are really just rants. So I'll just say this is the topic I want to rant on. I might have a few bullet points listed out that I want to yeah. hit. Um, and if I have like a joke in my mind that I want to do, I'll throw that in there. But really, it's just about uh, kind of like workshopping premises based on things that I'm interested in or want to rant about. And then I just kind of grow from there. And the thing I find is that going through the performing it process in front of the camera and then going through the editing process, it's almost like it's like doing an open mic times 20 in the sense of like, once I, once I go through performing a bit and then editing the bit for the show, I have the bit in my head. So now if I want to take one of those concepts into standup, it's, it's as tight and as workshopped and as rehearsed as it can possibly get because I've gone through and cut it and edited it and got the wording just right. And, you know, sometimes I'll pull, I'll pull the footage and I'm like, fuck, I got to go reshoot that entire thing. So I'll go back and reshoot a segment. Um, if something is funny or whatever, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it is to me, like it's, it's stand up in a way, but it's also taking advantage of the medium of having the ability to edit and then also to use visual punchlines because you don't have that on stage either. So sometimes the punchline is just the video clip or it's just the picture that appears. So there's a lot of different things you can play with in that medium that you can't do in stand up. And so for me, you know, I like NWT because it scratches that stand up itch um, and allows me to do something that's I feel more like stand up than podcasting. Wicked. You're uh, I saw uh, maybe an interview with you where you're indicating, you know, you try and use the presuppositions of your audience against them. Yeah, I think, you know, tell me a little bit because I just found that like the joke you laid out was I, I didn't I don't know if I heard the whole thing, but it was hilarious. Tell me about that. I'm assuming you're referencing the joke about slavery. Yeah, that was the where I, the, where I yeah. So that was uh, yeah, an example that, of it, I think. But do you do that often? Yeah, I try to. The, to me, that's like uh, that is the that is the water bottle off the top of the net shot oh, in terms okay. of stand up. Yeah. So like you know you th there's not always an opportunity to do that in every bit, but if you do have the opportunity to walk the audience down a path that is not the path you're taking them. Um, that to me is like, that is when I am the happiest with a bit is when I can use the audience assumption about what I'm saying against them. Um, and then point out that the thing you were offended at in that joke is your entire assumption. So the slavery joke is to me, that one is the most perfect example of that okay. where, you know, I, I drop this bomb and say, if it were legal, I would totally have slaves and you can feel the audience get uncomfortable. And then I just go, by the way, I didn't say what color they'd be. You just guessed. And, you know, when you do that joke in a room that is perfectly diverse, like it's, you know, half Mexican and black and half white, you really see that play out. Uh, the best the best response I ever got for that joke was in the original room of the comedy store. And it was that kind of audience where it was literally like it was almost like the left half of the room was black and the right half of the room was white. And you could immediately see the different responses to me hitting that turn in the joke 
from both sides. It was like shame on the white people's faces and uh, like winning a Super Bowl on the face of the... And they were just started antagonizing each other. Just black people laughing at white people for guessing black. White people, you know, uh, you know, feeling embarrassed for guessing black. And then, then the next line, the way the joke used to be was, I was like, like black people wouldn't have the most fucking slaves, you lazy pieces of shit. <laughs> and then that turn gets the fucking people going back and forth at each other. And so, um, you know, it was a fun, it was a fun kind of audience bit to play with because you could really jib everybody, you know. And and then as the joke has evolved now i talk about from a practical perspective gay people would make the best slaves because of the job description so and that's the thing i love to i love to take i love to beat people over the head with their own shitty assumptions because i think that's really what drives a lot of like this joke is offensive it's like no what you assume it means is offensive right like i can say the n-word in a joke two million times i don't think black people are subhuman do you understand yeah. it's a piece of art it's a piece of work. It's a fucking thing that's in, that's made to make you laugh. And if you can't get past the way that word makes you feel, then that's probably a personal issue, right? And so I generally find that people that get uncomfortable with the word, are it's because they have an offensive relationship with the word. Like mm -hmm. they use it to be offensive or they've had it used in situations where it's offensive. But, like, I don't take on the burden of what you're offended by uh, when I write material. And so I like doing bits like that because it reminds the audience, like, yeah, most of what you find fucked up about this premise or this concept is you, mm -hmm. not me. And so I try to write stuff that reminds them of that. And then I love to just turn left into absurdity and lay out the, the idea of a plantation full of homosexuals and what that might look like. <laughs> I had uh, Nasty Nate from Half-Baked on last night. He's a local guy. He lives in Niagara Falls, black. He played in the movie Half-Baked, Chappelle's movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but he played the black guy in prison that wants a piece of the new white uh, bitch that comes in, right? Yeah. And uh, he kept, he's a big water drinker, and I had him here in studio, so... He, he had to get up to pee a couple times, so I ended up doing a promo of you. I went through a bunch of the tweets, and I was talking about it. And as he was coming in, I was reading the famous N-word N -word tweet? tweet where you don't where you say N-word, not, you know, the word, right? Right. Um, and um, he sat down here, and uh, we talked for about an hour, and he went, yeah, I don't know about that whole tweet, but that word is owned. And as he expanded on it, I grew to understand. I, I, I was happy because he was going where I thought he was going. You know, there's a point where the culture took back that word. That word used to be a really offensive word 50 years ago. You know yeah. I mean? But black culture already took that word back by using it on themselves and mocking it. And in my mind, they reduced it to to next to meaningless the only thing the only people well it's basically dude i mean it's basically the word dude and that's why that's why i roll my eyes when people talk about it being the most offensive word in the english language it's like it, that's a person that has never been on the on xbox and played people online like 12 year olds use the n-word like it's a preposition mm. you know what i mean like and asian people use the n-word like it's uh, it's a fucking pronoun so you know it's like it is it is so jumped over the way that that word was used in the 60s and 70s. It's like part of the everyday cultural lexicon. And 
part of why that word is so popular in mainstream culture is to do with the widespread acceptance of rap and rap culture and black culture. So in a way, it's like part of you becoming like everybody else is the way you speak, dress and act becoming part of everybody else's culture. So there's this like weird thing of like, no, no, no. Uh, we want to go back to some segregation. Like we want to be able to have all the freedom. Um, and then if you, if our culture becomes everybody's culture, then we want to take it back. We don't like that. It's like, no, that's not how homogenization works. Like as we all kind of intermingle and mix, there is no black culture and white culture. There's just culture. And there's this weird thing of where people are overprotective of their culture when it comes to things that they can pretend to be offended about rather than just like, if I were a black rapper and kids were screaming the N word in my songs, I'm like, dude, that's fucking cool. That is cool that that word to them is just a song lyric and not a thing that was yelled at my grandmother when she tried to go to college in the sixties. You know what I mean? So like, uh, I just think it's a very, it's such a weird thing to, to, you know, look at how far, gangster rap had to come to where like they were trying to shut it down in every city in the 90s when nwa was touring and now you have total freedom to make whatever kind of music you want and not only do you have the freedom but it's widely accepted and highly commercially successful and so to me the, the, i think back to that kendrick lamar thing it's like if you don't want white kids saying the words to your songs then don't let them buy your albums and see how well you do financially <laughs> you know what i mean it's like but if you're going to make money off white consumers, then you have to realize that they're going to they're going to digest your product. And some of that is going to be your culture and the culture that you promote. So, you know, it's uh, it's annoying. Um, but I think we're I think we're going to come out the other end of it. And, I, you know, I think I agree with comics like Ari Shafir. I think we're headed back towards this sort of artistic and cultural renaissance where we're, we're going to be like anything goes artistically again because I hope you're right. the feeling on the ground is that people are just fucking tired of people pretending to be offended and so I, I think people now it's almost like thrill seeking I think people go to comedy clubs hoping to hear the most offensive shit that they've ever heard in their life mm. I think they tune into shows like the one I do on censored because they want to see like how fucking far will this guy push it mm. and and you know I, I hope to be at the front of that as it turns. And I'm, you know, I might be a little early by 10 years or yeah. something. But, that, isn't, you know. that, isn't that the beauty of being behind the paywall? You don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing and the censors yes. coming down and the second strike and the 30 day ban and all that kind of stuff. None of that stuff. And it actually makes me uh, not want to do things on any other platform for that reason, because you have total. You know, what are people going to do? Email Gavin and tell them that I'm being inappropriate on the, the show. He'd, laugh, he'd read their art. He'd read their yeah. letter on his show and laugh at them mm -hmm. and probably call them a fag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what? He's he's one of my favorite products right now because he's genuinely funny. I think he's got a level of uh, honesty that just is unmatched these days. So talk to me about the product that you see out there. And I'm not in comedy, but it must be frustrating seeing in Instagram and TikTok stars be booked for comedy shows when they've never told a joke in their life i mean you got to go yeah. through the fire don't you to be a comedian yeah. listen we we went through this a million we went through this many many times particularly in los angeles like when when youtube first came out in 2006 i was like right when i started being a stand-up and there was this comic that we rolled around open mics with a student named asa thibodeau 
He was the unfunniest black guy in the entire Minneapolis comedy scene. Okay. And he had the foresight to shoot little sketches and put them on YouTube. And he got these two other comedians in Minneapolis to do one with him called um, the Ghetto Whopper Freakout. And so I don't even remember they had these Whopper Freakout videos back in the early 2000s where they would take the Whopper out and then they would like do like a hidden camera footage of people being like, what the fuck you mean there's no Whoppers? So they did an all black version of this, which was really funny. And um, and it was one of the first like viral YouTube comedy videos. And so this guy who was like the least funny dude in the scene who knew how to shoot stuff and upload it to YouTube became the richest fucking comedian in Minneapolis in like a year. He was getting he just kept making sketches and doing different stuff. And he was got to a point where he was making like, oh, man, I, th- I can't remember the numbers. But at one point he was making like six figures a month on YouTube advertising. And this was back when like uh, YouTube was paying out something ridiculous, like six cents or 10 cents fucking per view or per click. I can't remember how the the AdSense worked back then, but this was very early YouTube monetization. It's like 2007. And so that was my first taste of like, oh, the funniest guy is not always the guy who makes all the money. And then that continued like with Vine, You saw it happen when Vine got really popular uh, about 10 years ago. You know, comics started losing club dates to Viners. And these are people who had like maybe 10 minutes of stand up from doing open mics. And now they're doing an hour. And some of these guys were just literally playing their fucking Vines on a projector behind them on stage um, and, and charging like $100 a ticket. So TikTok is no different. Like, and, and by the way, there are some really funny people that come out of all of those things. Like, you know, there are people that that popped in the Vine time that survived because they are genuinely talented and funny. Same thing will come out of TikTok. But at the end of the day, like, you can't control any of that. You can't control who pops, who makes the money, whatever. All you can do is um, make the kind of shit that you like, hope to make fans that like it as well, and then just try to grow that thing as steadily as you can. And um, that's all you can do. You can't really – so, yeah, I, I don't – I don't spend any mental energy on like, oh, this guy's getting this or this person's getting this. And right now it's pretty obvious what's deciding who gets deals for things, right? Like all you have to do is look at all the comedy specials that have been made during the pandemic. And it's like, they're taking, you know, a one year open mic comedian who happens to be trans and black and giving them an hour HBO special because they want to check that box and it has nothing to do with how good somebody is. So, you know, you just have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and go, yeah, man, like that's the industry. That's the business side of it. And eventually that's just not going to work because th- this is the problem with streaming, right? Is it's not like ratings were before. Um, like Nielsen ratings, if a show didn't work, you knew right away because the, the numbers weren't there. Right. And so, um, networks now that they're on the streaming model can afford more misfires and fuck ups because if it's not so bad that they're losing subscribers, then nobody really, you know, gets the guillotine, right? Like they could go, well, this thing didn't get as many views as, as some of the other standup specials we have. Um, so, you know, maybe this one wasn't as good of a hit, but we'll try next time. And then I just imagine that executive going, well, maybe America's not ready for like black trans people in comedy. And maybe we're just like ahead of the times. And, you know, that's probably a good thing. And so 
again, as long as these streaming companies aren't losing subscribers, there really isn't the same kind of acts that would fall versus, um, you know, when somebody would do a Comedy Central Presents and it would get such low ratings that then an advertiser would drop out of that time slot for the next season. And then that executive would get fired because they're like, yo, you lost us $2 million, $3 million in advertising because you booked a shitty year of Comedy Central Presents and now we have no advertisers in that time slot. So it's going to take longer for that kind of change to happen in entertainment now because of the subscriber, um, plat like the platform system. Eventually what's going to happen is uh, a whole cycle will go by where it's a year of not just shitty stand-up, but shitty scripted TV, shitty movies, shitty everything else. And then people are going to be like, fuck, it's been a year and I haven't enjoyed anything on HBO Max. I'm going to cancel that. And then, so it's going to take longer for the monetary consequences of making that shitty woke content. But when it happens, uh, it's going to happen hard. And then you'll see this overcorrection. So then there'll be like some rogue fucking executive like a Gavin, who's always been the guy who's kind of on the cusp of culture and where it's about to turn, who will then go to an HBO and go, uh, okay, now we have to go find the new Mr. Show. Now we have to find the most fucked up TV show that's going to push the envelope and get people interested in the platform again. And then that's when you'll see it turn. So everything, it's just like fashion. Everything is cyclical. And eventually like really edgy shit will come back in vogue as well because some streaming company is going to need to diverge to not lose subscribers and timeshare. Do you read the comments, bro? I can't even see. I can't see comments on anything. No. I'm just on. No, your do you read your own comments? Do you banter? Like, I mean, you were sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, yeah. It depends on. Um, it depends on who it is. Like, it takes me five seconds to realize usually if somebody's like a longtime troll, or if someone's like genuinely a fan who like is just giving feedback, or somebody is. Um, a Karen, for instance, who's just fucking commenting on something she knows. It's funny because about. the Karens on YouTube that are commenting right now saying they're going to report the show are still commenting. Like they're still here. What do you, what, if it's so offensive, what are you doing here? Are you, is right. it rage, rage, rage watching or like? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, you, you could listen. Uh, you, if you could, you could probably create a psychological practice or a psychiatry practice. Um, around people who fucking consume shit they hate on the internet because that is a you talk about a pandemic i mean that is there are entire shows that are just this is what i hate and i'm sharing it with you and then other people tune in and go i fucking hate that too and it's really it's really interesting because it's hate is not that different of an emotion than love. I, I right? wish more people would acknowledge their own hate because I, I see where mine is directed. I like where it's directed. It's directed in very specific places. But, you know, and I think that's what the frustrating thing was with Trump for so many people to look at him and go, well, I'm just like, I'm like that guy. I'm a Trump in my own weird, perverted way because we're all humans. We're more like Trump than we are different than Trump. So I just wish that people would start out and go, you know what? I got a lot of hate. I'm trying to deal with it. But they know they just hate and then and then hate on the people for being hateful. It's funny because, they, you know, it's like Madonna sitting at the Women's March saying, I think of Obama in the White House every day. He's just doing what Trump's doing back to him. I don't get it. 
Yeah, you know, hate is an interesting thing because it's transcended beyond, like, here's how I compartmentalize hate. If I look at somebody and my immediate reaction is I fucking hate this person, the next thing that I do is I go, why does that person evoke this emotion in me? And and it's usually pretty easy. Like, I'll give you an example. A famous person I fucking hate is uh, Demi Lovato. I can't stand her. And I can't stand her because you said, you said Vemi, Vemi, right? Yes, Vemi Lovato. <laughs> yes. At at the core, what I hate about her is that she reminds me of so many fucking women that I dated in my twenties. Like, they are, you know, self-centered, dishonest, um, have an overblown sense of self-importance, um, like have complete blinders on in the world, and so, you know, the. the as much as like who she is, is not good in my mind. It's also not a realistic factor for me to ever encounter. It's like, so you have to realize like, oh, I don't hate Demi Lovato. I hate every girl like her that has ever fucked up my, you know, fucked my life up. Um, and so, you know. Um, I think of the same thing when I look at, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know, Oprah Winfrey or Whoopi Goldberg when they're ranting. I'm like, why? How can I hate a person? Like, how can I feel such strong, negative feelings for someone I don't know? And you're right. right. It's just what they represent. I think. And, and all it is is a projection of what I think she represents. Right. And it's so you have to realize it's the same for you. It's the same for me. Like the people that hate me that have never met me, they don't hate me. They hate whatever I represent in their life. So I hate, uh, they hate me because I'm the guy that they work with that has gotten promoted over them that they don't think deserves it. Or I'm the guy that annoyed them in school when they were a kid or, you know, it's, it's whatever you represent there or, or you're like a reminder of their unhappiness at their lack of success in life or whatever it is, or their fear about failure. You know, like I'm a guy who's pretty, open about how comfortable I am with failing. Like, you know, I'd rather try everything and fail at most of it than be too fucking cowardly to take any shots in life. Mm. And uh, mm. I think that mentality and being vocal about it really bothers people who whose lives are layups, where they just, they always have taken the conservative path. They don't ever take risks. They, they went to a school to learn a trade or to get into a path that they were told by a guidance counselor was gonna be very employable. And they would have all kinds of job security. And so they went to school and they became a web designer. And then they went and got a job in web design and they made the money they told them they'd make in college. And now they're 40 and they have no wife or no kids or no joy in their lives. And then they look to a guy like me who at times has been on the verge of eviction and fucking broke. And I have my happiness and I have my joy. Like I get to do whatever the fuck I want to do every day when I wake up. And there are people that are just absolute slaves to existence that hate people like me because the money and the comfort is why they do everything. And for someone like me to just go, I don't give a fuck if I don't make any money at this, that infuriates them that somebody could have that mentality. And so, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's to each their own, right? You, you gotta, you gotta reconcile. If you are unhappy with that in your life, do something to change it. And yeah, I know when I, when I left corporate America for good um, a few years back and knew that there was no going back to it for me, I, I had to make peace with that really quickly and say, listen, it's, it's this path or you have to find out how to delete everything you've ever done 
and quit entirely. Like you can't, you'll never be able to go back to like, I have a day job and then I'm also a, a you know, a volatile comedian. Um, so, you know, people just have to, they have to make choices and you have to, you have to, you know, be the one who puts your head down at night, happy with those choices. And I can't, if I represent somebody's disgust for the choices they've made in their lives, uh, I'm glad it's me. I'm glad it's me. Cause it could be a lot of people. Right. Yeah, man. Bro, uh, I appreciate your time just on the way out. Who are you grooving with? Who is making you laugh these days? Who are you finding entertaining? Who are you teaming up with? Who are you working with? Who are your boys? What are you doing? Uh, so I mentioned the Are You Garbage podcast. Mm-hmm. I think that podcast is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like Ryan Long. I got to shout out, you know, my my favorite New York comedians, friends of mine, uh, Gino uh, Bisconti, Eric, uh, Aaron Berg, um, uh, Chrissy Mayer, all the compound cats over there. That Chrissy are, Mayer's you know, doing, doing a really nice cool job stuff. with interviews these days, man. So good. She's such a good interviewer. I just know, I, as soon as she interviewed Gavin, I mean, I think I had been exposed to her before, but she was really, you did a good job with Gavin too, because it's tough. You know, like if you got someone, you, you know, it's tough not to do the whole bit that everyone does with them, you know? So the, both you and Chrissy were really fresh with Gavin. I appreciated that. Yeah, the thing I like the most about and Gavin is a big one too. I mean, that's one of the things I hate being on the opposite coast from Gavin is that that we can't do as much stuff together in person as I wish we could because, um, you know, like we we are very much like comedic, uh, you know, we're sort of like a like a weird comedic Gemini in the sense of, you, you know, like joke wise, we can when we're together we can like finish each other's fucking bits and sentences and thoughts like. He is very much like comedically, we're on a very similar wavelength in terms of the way we see the world and the way we see what's funny. Mm-hmm. And like the the little bit of time we spent together, you know, we'll fucking rile each other up because, you know, he'll he'll make a joke that's like completely off color and um, completely well timed. And then I'm like, fuck, I got to Now I got now I got to yeah. do one. You know what I mean? Like and so it keeps you on your toes. And um He's sharper than like 90% of people that do stand up in terms of like hmm. being able to have the perfectly timed, uh, horrific fucking thing to say at the right moment to make everybody laugh and, and not being afraid in doing that at all. And the thing I like the most about Gavin is, um, and he's never like said this to me, it's just in how he talks about his friends and how he talks about people, the time we spent together. Uh, I've always said the grossest thing one person can do to another person is make them feel embarrassed for who they are. And, uh, and I feel like Gavin treats people the same way, right? Like uh, Gavin will never make you feel uh, embarrassed for who you are unless he's absolutely just trying to do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Like, unless that's the bit, right. But <laughs> he would never, like if somebody made a fucking joke, uh, you know, organically that bombed, he would never be like, dude, you have problems. Like he would never talk. Like you have to reconsider your entire, you know, like I've always said that the the grossest thing like a woman can make you do is make you feel embarrassed to be yourself. And, and that's the thing I like the most about Gavin is no matter the company he's in, because he could literally be standing in a fucking uh, herd of Mexican uh, like uh, laborers or he could be in a room full of business people and he's a guy that just makes people feel good about being themselves and makes them have fun 
And, and, you know, for as, as the funniest story I tell people is my, my buddy, Sean, who went with me to visit Gavin when I was on the East coast, he didn't know anything about Gavin other than what the mainstream media says about Gavin. Mm -hmm. So we're going up there. And as far as he knows, we're about to meet the new Hitler. Right. And so I go, listen, man, if it turns out that he really is that way, like we can just fucking get a hotel and, and, and just go about our business. And we had such a great time. Uh, the next morning we're fucking leaving. And he was like, man, if that's the next Hitler, Hitler must've been a lovely dude because you know, as unpopular as he's supposed to be in that town, he's like the fucking mayor. We would go around restaurants and stuff. Everybody knows the dude, everybody loves him. Um, and I, and I think the, the appeal about Gavin is that he's a guy who's always unapologetically been himself. And that's, those are the kind of people I like to fuck with people that are comfortable in their own skin um, and absolutely have no problem being themselves. And we'll, we'll tell you to go fuck yourself if you try to make them uncomfortable being themselves. Mm -hmm. Seems like a good place to end it there, brother. I really appreciate your time. It was all that I thought it would be. I hope to do it again with you. I figure if I, uh, you know, if I pleasure enough censored.tv hosts, maybe I can get a gig on the station, you know? Hey, maybe you never know. JB Beverly was great. I, I made uh, AIU see God. So it's, uh, I got a good track record. I'm going to work on Jim, uh, Jim load. I want to uh, get a load of Jim load, Jim Goad. He's fucking fire these days too. Anyways, uh, <laughs> punch it up. Oh, I'm going to punch it up right here for everyone to see on the way out. How do I exit full screen here? Yeah, the contacts are here. Here's the website, joshdennycomedy.com. Here's, and the links are in the show description below. So there's the twatter. Uh, there's the twatter tweet. <laughs> Straight white male. Uh, forever known for that. Uh, dude, tell me uh, just on the way out a short story about trying to be canceled a, a show you left how long ago? Oh, yeah. So my favorite part of Twitter. It's it's one of the best long-running bits on Twitter. Yeah, they're still have, right? uh, dude, I went to check it out. Sorry to interrupt. But the amount of bots seeing the same cut-and-paste program, uh, like tweet, is amazing. So they actually have a bot farm dedicated to trolling you? And getting canceled. Uh, it yeah, I don't know about that. I haven't seen yeah, that, I've but seen I don't know. Multiple I mean, it accounts could be, with the very yeah, same it, message, and then they it will could look be, like it, new if, accounts. If, with if no that's the case, it's probably something I've blocked, and I don't even yeah. see it or or uh, muted or whatever. I so, um, I uh, yeah, the funnest thing is, um, le I leave that in my bio um, specifically because it immediately lets me know um, which complaints to throw in the garbage can. You know, like, uh, and it's, and it also to me is the greatest ridicule of cancel culture because people will like, I'll tweet a fucked up joke and then people will come to my profile and look at where I work. And the, f here's the thing. If you knew anything about Gavin and censored, you would read that and immediately go, there's nothing that can be done here because this person is behind the most radicalized firewall on the internet. Uh, you know, if you're listening to the mainstream narrative, right? Um, but instead they just see Food Network and they go like, this is something I could get him fired from. And they just start tweeting at the Food Network immediately without even doing a simple Google search to be like, oh yeah, that show came off the air in 2018 and there's no point in tweeting at Food Network. And I would, I would be so quick to say, that the Food Network probably gets more mentions about me three years after I left their network than any of their current talent. 
by name because that happens. Every time I tweet something fucked up or something people don't like, they're automatically in at the Food Network <laughs> trying to get me fired from a job I haven't had in three years. I'm just reading your tweet from, what was this, yesterday, August 2nd. Finally broke down and got the vaccine today and it turned me gay. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? Oh, I gotta put you. I gotta put you on notifications, man. I've been sucking everyone in sight. Oh my god! I should have looked at this earlier. This could. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, sometimes today, like, you're getting and sucked. This is, oh my god. Sometimes too, I gotta catch myself on Twitter because I'll I'll realize like, holy shit, it's been four days and I'm just like ranting about politics and I haven't made a single joke, like in the last four days. Like I need to fucking get back to what it is that I do. And so, you know, sometimes, like I said, my favorite thing to do is just turn left when no one's expecting it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and <laughs> that tweet yesterday was just like, this will be fun. Um, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's, that's what's beautiful about, that's what's kind of liberating about being one of these canceled comedians is that like any hope that I'm on any network's radar or anything like that is completely out the window, At right? Now, and so, but, but you got to figure the pendulum swings back and we go back to Mr. Show type of stuff, no? Maybe, Like kids, yeah, kids and, and in the if, hall are coming back. You think they're going to be all PC now? Well, if that happens, that will be great for guys like me. But even if it doesn't happen, there's always going to be fans of shit like that mm -hmm. that I can go out and get. And so, and that's just like, to me... I would never want to do comedy that isn't funny to me. And that's what it all starts with. Like every joke that I do, whether it hits or not, is something I did because the idea of it made me laugh. And, and that has steered me more well than it steered me wrong in my career. And so that's what I use as a, as a North star for what I'm, what I want to joke about is do I think it's funny? And if I think it's funny, then it's, it's open season. And, Anybody that likes it can jump in and laugh at it with me. And anyone that doesn't like it can, there's plenty of other shit out there. Go watch that. I love you, brother. Good times. Thanks for the time. Uh, keep it uh, solid and uh, good luck on censor.tv. I'll be watching. Sounds you. good. All Thanks, right, Jim. Peace out, yeah. That's Josh Denny. If you need him, thank you, Josh Denny. Wicked. Nice conversation. Here's where you find. <laughs> Like, Jesus. Uh, you need to laugh, okay? Like, it's there's more to life than being uptight. Like, we need to be able to make fun of each other. You know, I was out last night, and I was in a bar. I haven't been in a bar in a long time. And uh, I was sitting at the bar. In Canada, in most bars, we just got open. We've been in a hard lockdown, and in this region, you needed to be with your own people in your own house to eat. Anyways, I was in a bar last night, and I just finished interviewing Nasty Nate from Half-Baked. He's black and very fucking cool. And so, anyway, he wanted to check this out. We had an, He's got an idea. He wanted me to see a venue. We ended up at a bar in Welland, 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 Ontario. Yes, my old haunt. I spent uh, three quarters of my high school years in uh, in Welland. So I'm sitting at the bar. Well, no, I'm sitting. I'm in the bar with these two guys, and I'm busting this guy's balls. I'm, I don't know who this guy is. I'm there with Rick. I don't know Rick that well. I only interviewed him the one time. We hung out yesterday for the first time, basically. I met him a couple times at PPC events. 
Anyways, this young guy, for lack of a better word, is bearded, kind of red-haired Leaf fan with a hat on, and he's short. And I don't know. I think I busted him about being short, being from Welland, and being a Leaf fan. I'm like, fuck, get me out of here, Rick. Like, fuck me. I'm in a nightmare here. I've seen the bar. Get me out of Welland. The guy goes, dude, just, just bust everyone's footballs like that. I go, no, just short guys from Welland that are Leaf fans. Fuck. And I point to Rick. I go, I bust this guy's balls for being black. What's the deal? Like, don't be so uptight. <laughs> he was fine with it. But, like, fucking lighten up. Like, life's too short. Because I make fun of a black guy in public doesn't mean I hate black people. <laughs> So whatever. Josh Denny was a breath of fresh air for me. I only, Gavin sent me, right? I'm gay for Gavin. And uh, I think he's one of the most talented uh, comedians, like political commentators around. And I pay, he, he was the first guy to get me, I don't break for queefs. This should be a t-shirt. He, he, like he just says it man and he's funny and he talks about the things that I find interesting and so good on him 25,000 subs at $10 USD a month not bad money well way to go he's got a, a decent lineup and if you go to the show page here at censored.tv you go to the show you see if you go all the way down to the bottom the last guy the last guy is Josh Denny and that's well, just by virtue of the order that they came in I think but you can see some old Milo takes in there. Milo, I don't know Milo. I can take them in small doses. Uh, Beef Squad was pretty good. I've had JB on the show here. Atheism is unstoppable. Is the show like it's worth the money alone to see this guy? Devin Tracy is a talent. I've had him on the show before. Um, like to book him again, but you don't follow me on Twitter. My old Twitter account at Jim Fannin got hacked where I had 10,000 basically MAGA followers and Jim Fanninshow followers, and uh, the lefty mob came after me. Atheism is Unstoppable is a great show on this channel. I don't get anything for pimping this channel, but uh, those are the guys I listen to. And then uh, Kumia comes on with uh, Gavin on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. They do a one-hour show. Uh, it's called Censored, Compound Censored or something like that. The Spiel, I've... I've Check that out a little bit. She's a delight. Oh, wow. Isabella Riley. Hi. My name's Jim. She's sweet. Uh, Gavin Wax is pretty solid, too. I haven't seen their stuff in a while, but anyway. Josh Denny's got his show up on Behind the Paywall right here at Censored.tv, and it's the best 10 bucks. The, I was the, it's, he got my money, the first guy to get my money. I've never... Uh, Paid money for anything before. Now it turns out, what am I also my on now? Blaze TV, I think. But fuck, I can get most of my Crowder uh, free from YouTube. And Crowder's on a fucking break. So I'm paying for a product. Who else am I getting on Blaze TV? Oh, and I'm working them too. Savannah Hernandez. And uh, what's his name? Elijah Schaefer. You're on the clock, Elijah. Good on my zoom call uh here's where you find me on the fake book oh facebook did not we did not go out to facebook today so i don't know what fucked up uh but something obviously did maybe i'm in timeout. i don't know but uh what up youtube uh twitch i wasn't watching you and oh gosh 
Uh, I'm not researching Denny. He makes me laugh. That's all I care about. Who cares? Get over yourselves, homies. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened. Oh, yeah, and my bot chat is down. My chat bot or whatever restream. So it's not propagating between platforms. That That's a complete premature ejaculation on my part. Anyway, sorry. Uh, let's see. Yep, there's the website. Oh, all the stuff's in the link below, right? Peace, love, hug your neighbor. Take that filthy, dirty diaper off your face. I love you. I'm out.